Hello and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast put on by three dudes. But we come before you in auspicious times. We, as three dudes, are deeply divided. <laughs> uh-huh. There are opinions and views floating about that threaten to tear us apart. How can we navigate these choppy waters? All that and more. On this episode <laughs> of Classical Stuff. This is like the trailer name, for the I think you're overpromising. More? <laughs> My name is Graham Donaldson, and I am here with Thomas Fletcher Magby. Hello. And Arthur Yon, A.J. Hannenberg. Wow. That's an extra middle name, but I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, no problem. And we are classical teachers at a classical Christian school in Austin, Texas called Veritas Academy. And weeks ago, mere weeks, we floated an innocent podcast out there into the world. On an innocuous topic of conversation called heresy. How could it go wrong? <laughs> How could that go wrong? It didn't go wrong, but we <laughs> have, it has elicited wonderful, amazing feedback mm-hmm. into flooded our inbox, and those birds of Twitter have plopped those replies and retweets on our decks, the decks of our hearts. And what? <laughs> okay. And so Thomas has felt compelled uh, to uh, take up the topic yet again. Or I don't know, I don't know what you're doing. Thomas. <laughs> Wait, what if, what if you, and I'm not, I realize I ran out of rope. I'm, I'm like, actually, I don't know I'm actually not going to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be really messed up. Yeah. It's like, nah, actually, I'm just going to talk about trees. I don't know. What am I going to talk about? Yeah, Jokes so, on you, chumps. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. If you talk about trees, I'm going to leave. <sighs> Thank you. All my word. Okay. Okay. Let's branch out into something different. Donaldson. <laughs> you've, you've got roots here. Yeah, that's true. This mm-hmm. is embarrassing. So, yes, this in originally thinking about this episode, it We'd was like. pine for you. Uh, <laughs> It's, it was like all the, uh, my, the original prompt was going to be See, like, dare what you've oh done. My you've <laughs> Man, that was a pretty, pretty bad joke. <laughs> this is so sad right now. This is going to be an episode about sadness and what I experience in recording. No, just kidding. Okay. So yeah, the original, th- the original thought was going to be, you have more jokes. I see you all. No, I, I do, but we're not going to, you're going to save them for yeah, later. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm holding one, but I'll just keep it in my palm. I'm not doing it. I mean, I'm, you're barking up the wrong tree on this one. <laughs> no winning. There's no winning. That was pretty naughty, Grant. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Going the, against the grain? Uh, I'll stop. That's, <laughs> we're up to like 20 already. I'm kind of impressed. Let's branch off. You, that's the second time you've made that no. one. I feel like that's a party foul. That's Sorry. all I got. <laughs> so, oh, I thought you were going to go for Okay. So the original concept was just going to be things that I wish I'd clarified more when I talked about them last time. So... That would include the translation episode in addition to the heresy episode, but we'll talk about translation probably later if we talk about it at all. So, yes, the main thing to talk about here is kind of a follow-up to the heresy episode. And similarly to the previous episode, I'm more interested – Is it, so we do this it's, – it's classical stuff you should know. So there are – yeah, I'm interested in like the classical aspect of it. I'm the, I'm interested in the takeaways about heresy more so than individual heresies. I said that last time. I'll just repeat it again in case anyone looks at this and says that I didn't go into enough detail. It's because it's kind of not my goal. My goal is not here to like teach you theology because that's not really in the scope of classical stuff you should know. Is that fair? You disagree? Graham just like looked horrified that I said that. Uh, I don't know. How can you not teach theology? It's all around us. Okay. Uh carefully i don't know so 
at, at one level, we're just going to be coming back. We're coming back to the main one on impassibility and mm-hmm. theopascism, theopascatism. You'll see it stylized both ways. So just as our fun reminder of what that is. So the controversy being addressed uh, was about suffering. So it was about whether Christ and his divine nature was capable of suffering. So let's actually zoom back even farther. The bulk of our time in the previous episode was going through some early heresies that all related to the character of Christ. And the reason for that is that understanding the character of Christ is a really complicated thing. And so there had to be these disagreements to figure out what exactly was believed about who this person was, because it's really hard to wrap your mind around someone being fully man and fully God. Mm -hmm. So there were some misunderstandings about him. And so those misunderstandings related to whether he was created or not. Well, so like, was he actually God? Uh, Then the next question was, was he actually a human or was he just kind of pretending to be a human? Did he have a joined together identity or did he have kind of two separate, there was like a human Christ and like a divine Christ and he would switch between them. Like a partitioned hard drive. Yeah, Partitioned so that they wouldn't, they didn't, they really impact each other, but they were two separate ones. And also the final question was, did Christ have this like third separate nature that wasn't human? It wasn't divine. It was a mixing of the two. So some third type. And the answers were, he wasn't created. He was in fact really human. He did not have a split identity. He was both fully man and fully God. And then he did not have a third hybrid nature. So those were the answers to those first. Although mm-hmm. that's the orthodox position yes, of, those of, are the orthodox of Christ's nature, which isn't to say that no one since then has be- or that there aren't people who believe those things mm-hmm. or say those things, uh, but the, the or orth- functionally operate as if out, as if those things are not true. Like sure. they functionally operate under a different. They may you know say, oh yeah, totally, Christ is hundred percent man, hundred percent God, but then the way that they practically preach or talk about him is not. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of, I know we're, yeah, we got a really great email about about the difference between holding heretical views and then wielding heresy to to divide the church, which sure. I thought was a really helpful distinction. Yep. Anyway. And that, so we started with those four. We went in, we were going to do like kind of a rapid fire of remaining heresies, and we got stuck on like the second one on the list, so we didn't do <laughs> a rapid fire of heresies, which I'm not going to attempt today either. But the... The one we got hung up on last time was theopascatism. It was whether Christ and his divine nature was capable of suffering. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really have time to dive into it. So I wanted to spend some more time here because it seemed like there was lots of conversation we could have had and did not. So the the more interesting question, I think, and please feel free to disagree, is how do we how do we even go about answering a question like this? So we have a question about, uh, yeah, essentially, yeah. How do you approach a question that you don't know the answer to? I dig my heels in and okay. don't listen to opinions on the other side. That's <laughs> that's a good one. Okay, I like good. I like where your head's at. Yeah, we got that from Twitter. We got that. Yeah. Is that true? Did no, someone? Oh, sorry. Um, so theology, the, the operating, uh, my always operating principle when it comes to theology is we have the story, we have the revealed revelation of the text of the Bible and of the person and work of Christ. And depending on how strongly you take it, the tradition and history of the church. So Catholics would take that stronger than Protestants. In term, so we have the story and we have the, the church's life uh, out in the world and in history. And then it's our job. So from the story, from the revealed text, it's, it's our job to try to draw principles to 
um, from the story. So this is what I tell my students. I say, if you want to know what God's nature, or what God, what the Bible, if you want to be biblically literate, what the Bible says about any topic, is you need to find any reference, not just overt reference to that topic, but you need to find any story or any any uh, text that take some sort of position on what that topic is and then have that as, as evidence for saying biblical view about topics. So okay. I'll give you an example. And this is the one that I use in my English class or my, in my uh, leadership class is like Exodus 21, where it says, um, if an ox gores a man, the ox shall be stoned to death. If the ox has a history of goring a man, then the ox's owner should be tried for it, should be stoned to death. The ox's owner could also pay a price to get out of stoning to death. And then the last one is, and if an ox gores a child, it's the same penalty. So, right, so you get this little story in the Old Testament. You can draw a bunch of principles about what God, about what Scripture says about certain things. One, children are just as valuable as adults. Like they have just as much inherent value. That may seem like an obvious duh, but you know, there's biblical evidence that children are as valuable or are, are, has an inherent dignity as much as adults do. They're not like two thirds of an adult. So then let me, so I will quote two things that come from emails that we, that we got in the last mm-hmm. few weeks. So one of them is Malachi three, six for I, the Lord do not change. Another mm-hmm. one, first Corinthians 10, five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, uh, so when, or, Job changed God's mind, sure. right? So we have the stories, and now we've got to say, okay, what's going on here? And um, and, I, and I would honestly say that there's probably been equal amounts of scripture quoted on both sides of things. Yeah, there's no one who's coming in and saying, ignore the scripture. Uh, here's my logical argument: go so, to first principles. Yeah, everyone's, or everyone's trying to. Yeah. Everyone is looking to Revelation as a source of answering this, and there's there are equal quotes and citations on both sides. Yeah, and I think that's that's sort of bedrock foundational: is that if you're going to, if we are going to be people of the book, uh, then the book is is axiomatically taken as God's revealed word. Okay, then we can develop the theology about God's nature based on the reveal the revelation not only of his word but also of what we see in the character and nature of christ so um yeah so um it gets real complicated because then we grafted in all of these greek ideas into into the into you know the the jewishness um christianity is this mush of of jewishness and greek ideals together uh in in culture and then also this this work of 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 christ so that's where the impassibility has – you were talking about the sort of Hanenberg before. That's like the idea of God's impassibility is definitely um, sort of a hill that the more Hellenistic Christians are dying on than but it's maybe a, the – It's a logical one. So I guess my, my decision-making process always begins with the question, is it worth talking about? And I think that applies to philosophy. It applies to theology as well. You know, asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pin will not affect my day-to-day life. That's so fascinating. Sure, maybe, but... They can change size. It's interesting. Anyway. Interesting, but is it going to change how I treat my neighbor? Probably not. This one might actually, right? Can God change? Is he immutable? Can he feel things or suffer? All those are big questions. How does God suffer? Yeah. How how does God interact with the things that I do are all really good questions. And so then I think it's a process of go to scripture first, look at the context of the scriptures, and then go to looking at the men who have made the decision, and I think it's a twofold question there. What were the influences at play during those time periods? Like C.S. Lewis would say, what were the, what were the t- 
typical downfalls of that time period that they were blind to, that we are no longer blind to. And then also coming with a sense of humility, thinking, well, I'm, what, a ninth grade English teacher? And I'm a theology major, but I, I'm not... I am not the same level as some of the people who've been in, in this argument for a long time. So I think coming with a sense of humility first and thinking, all right, listen, listen to these men and actually listen as a learner. And then if, if they conflict, then maybe I'll have to come to a decision. But come, come I guess, with a, a, a sense of humility on top of all of this. As far as the Greek thought coming into this, I know that I think the logic is that if if something is absolutely perfect, then any change admitted to its perfection must be a change away from perfection. Yeah. And that, so that's kind of the thought, is that if God suffers, then he is changing. And and it also means that something is powerful enough to inflict upon something him something he didn't necessarily want. Mm-hmm. And so that implies that there's a greater being or at least an equal being to God. And so I think there's some logical things coming in here, but I also tend to think that the Hebraic tradition wouldn't have been as sensitive to those. I, I don't. Okay. You don't agree? No. So I just think it's, it's an, so we're, it's not necessarily even looking to tradition. It's like looking to influences of tradition. So I, I think you can just as easily point to the Greeks and look at the philosopher God that Aristotle talks about as mm-hmm. being impassable. Nothing impacts him. It's more yeah. of a deistic conception of God, but there is an idea of impassibility in Aristotle, but then you also, when you look at Greek mythology, the gods are not impassable by any means. They are deeply emotional. So yeah. I think you can just as easily find a passable, uh, you know, with passion. You can find gods with passion in, in Greek idea. You can find impassable ideas in Greek thought. And when when in, I say Greek, I'm speaking about, about a specific time period of Greek thought. I even, um, But even take it so even farther, if we, to look to Hebraic thought, look to the Old Testament, are there emotion words used about God? And the answer is yes. The answer mm-hmm. is of course. But then is there also a tradition that says that even with, that those emotion words are meant as metaphor? Yes. Mm-hmm. Like both are present in Old Testament writing. So I think we're still left at that same place of what do we do with that? And, and that's still the fundamental question. Like, what do we do with that? We could be Arians and just say that the, every time we see the emotional God, we're talking about a created a lesser being. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we do with that? I mean, at some point, if you're butting up against God and trying to con- conceive of God, at some point, everything is going to be metaphor, <laughs> right? Um, uh, is God a father? Well, we get fatherhood from God. Like we understand the concept of fatherhood. So, I mean... Eventually, language is going to break down. Eventually, all these things are going to be little imperfect parcels to attach to understanding understanding God's nature. So, um, um, but this gets really crazy because God makes himself visible and communicable in space and time. And on that has, seemingly has emotions and like thought processes and the ability to converse where someone says, but God, what about this? And he's like, ah, good idea. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, uh, I mean, um, uh, I, I, I don't, but then the theology doesn't, the theology of salvation doesn't work without an impassable God on the cross. And why is that? Because. Um, I should say we're referencing many emails from 
from uh, listeners at this point, right? Yeah. Well, let me look. I only say that as a I don't thing. have the tip in my brain. Why oh. doesn't salvation work with him pass with a, if God is passable, if God can change? Um, then, then the standard of goodness is called into question. And then, then the, his law changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if God can change, then, um, 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 then there's no, then, then the concept of holiness doesn't make sense. Yes. And that, so one of the listeners wrote in to talk about how if God is changing, then there, then we have to be really shaky about our understanding of eschatology, our yeah. understanding yeah, of yeah, end yeah. times, because mm-hmm. those things might not be true. They could have been true at one point in time. God then changes his mind, and then we have to figure that out. But then if God doesn't feels, which doesn't feels, if mm-hmm. God doesn't feel or if Christ doesn't, if Christ really actually isn't suffering on the cross, then the story is sort of robbed of resonance or power. How can Christ have been tempted like we are tempted if suffering bounces off of him and he doesn't feel it? I think the distinction, the important distinction there is the, the key word in divine nature. Mm-hmm. If, if there are two natures commingled on the cross, then he can suffer in his human nature and not in his divine. Yep. Yeah. Which then will, that in a way that feels like the punchline, like in a way that's, that is the orthodox position at the end of it. But Again, this is orthodoxy set fifteen hundred years ago. Like that's, I'm asking why it matters uh, essentially. Like so, people said this over a thousand years ago. Like, but we have gotten many responses that don't just say this was established. This is what has been said in the church tradition. Therefore, we hold to it. That's why I'm asking. Does it matter what was said fifteen hundred years ago? Totally. Why? Because, um, well, because the logic of it hasn't changed. So the theology. So Christ being divine and being human and we've talked about you know we've, we've i just said it right now like we need that for for salvation to make sense so the fact that they f- that they crystallized it 1500 years ago um doesn't make the logic of it any less persuasive mm-hmm. um um but there so this is a this is also from listener email in some ways the passability of god god being with passion god capable of suffering is it's sometimes called the new orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. I'm using um, air quotes as I say that. Largely in follow-up to World War II. And yeah, how the, can you have... Yes, how can you have a God The who, horrors of the yes, world. ...without a God who understands and identifies with that suffering? Mm-hmm. It depends what the conclusion you're wanting from that is. Like, so there's a, definitely a modern conceit that somehow suffering is more noble than not suffering. And you see this creep into the stories that we tell. And I, I've talked about this before, that like the, the tortured hero somehow seems to, should be, is, is um, um, set up as somebody who should be taken more seriously as the joyful hero. Mm-hmm. That like Superman is naive, and so you need dark Superman, brooding Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow like um, uh, the brooding hero that's always walking around Gotham in the rain or whatever is somehow more serious. So if we if we're if we are falling into the trap that the suffering God is somehow more of a serious God than the than the God of joviality and mirth, mm-hmm. then I think that's a bad conclusion to come away from by saying therefore we need to really read God as someone who can suffer. Um, I don't think that's what New Orthodoxy was getting at maybe at the beginning. They were really trying to understand. Um, you know the, the horrors of the 20th century. Um, I just, what do you get? What what do you get from a god who? What is it? What what do they want? Feels really bad about it. 
or, um, or identifies with or it. identifies with it. But what what is the um, yeah? I, again, maybe this is this is more of a modern taste. Is that we want we want our leaders or we want those who are in authority or power over us to get us yes in the same way that we feel it, and we don't be, we don't feel that if somebody understands what we're going through cognitively but not experientially that that, that they somehow don't understand it. Um, you wouldn't understand this. You're not a parent. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not a parent. I don't have a child, but I mean, I can understand a lot of it. Yep. But I, I feel like a lot of people reject that as saying, <coughs> if you haven't if you haven't lived it, you don't get it. Yep. And I feel like we're we're putting that standard on God as well. And I and I feel like so if that's the motivation for doing it, that's that doesn't seem to be the wrong motivation. There needs to be a logical flow. There needs to be a th- sort of a a theological reason as opposed to just um, a modern taste reason. Sure. I agree. I think all those are, are valid points. The The direction I'm pushing this toward is a tool that incorporates all of these things. And I think it's one we've talked on this podcast about and one I know that we teach in our leadership classes. So uh, the tool is the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Is this one that you all use? I do not know this. Oh, never mind. Okay. So uh, it. I was raised Methodist, so maybe this is why I think ah, it's like your the best. heart was strangely warm. Strangely warmed. I'm all about Alders Gate. I so. was raised Anglican, so my heart was strangely <laughs> cooled. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess and you're not going to a Methodist church now, though. I was going to say we, tra- we traded places, but that's not exactly right. So Wesleyan Quadrilateral. It, so it you know it has John Wesley's name on it, but John Wesley did not make a thing called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. This is based on people reading Wesley and saying this is how he made decisions. So the parts of this quadrilateral. So quad mm-hmm. you know, for mm-hmm. lateral sh- shape it's a anyway it's a four-pointed i usually do it as a square when i'm talking about it in class but so there are four points to the square those four points are scripture tradition reason and experience scripture tradition reason and experience so as opposed to the three-legged stool which is just scripture tradition and reason sure. no is it i think i'm right I don't know. I don't know three-legged stool. Should I know that one? No, nah, that's fine. Okay, good. So, uh, and again, this is, uh, I, I think it, in the 20th century is when it was like kind of codified into a system. So anyway, a, an important question is which of those four do you put at the top? Yeah. So, and and that what I think has been more interesting in just reading responses is to understand like how, how do we primarily understand these issues. And then if there are conflicts at one level, like what do you, what do you appeal to next? Like what is the next thing that you look at? So in understanding what's your order, maybe scripture, scripture first, I would, uh, so to rank all four would be scripture, tradition, reason, experience. Wow. I think, I, I think I would, I would probably, pu- I would probably flip tradition and reason. I would probably okay. do scripture, reason, tradition, experience. Yeah. But I was a low church angle. Okay. <laughs> Hannenberg, do you have a response on this one? I'm hoping you'll like put experience first experience <laughs> good good great feeling uh-huh. yeah, good. Uh-huh. keep going if it's music or not, what music. the music yeah. tells yeah. me yeah what my, what my feels are uh-huh. i i think scripture obviously first and then if by i'm, I'm having trouble differentiating between tradition as in things that Christians always do and blindly accept versus ah, the blindly. The, what do I call it blindly? But the, but the, the this, I, it's an important blindly yep. accept versus yep. the tradition of the church established by biblical scholars from ages past, right? Yeah. Who I gladly typically submit to yep. so long as their logic checks out. Yeah. So then reason before tradition. You just said so that's, long that's as their logic checks out, you, 
I would assume you would put reason above it. But not... But but I mean, like, if when traditions come into clash with each other, mm-hmm. like, often there yep. are traditional scholars in the Christian church mm-hmm. that are both accepted and sometimes disagree with each mm-hmm. other. So if multiple traditional scholars disagree with each other, I'll have to bring my own reason to bear. Mm-hmm. If I'm coming up against several and repeated scholars that all say the same thing and hold the same position... I'm usually not in a place to supplant their reason. Yep. It might be that I don't understand it. It might be that I'm just inadequate. Um, I I try to be as humble as I can when coming to these things. Mm-hmm. That's that's why I try not to pass, you know, judgment on Karl Barth or mm-hmm. or Calvin without having read what they actually said yep. instead of just kind of assuming a simplified argument of theirs and then moving on. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at, in tradition, I mean the codified logical tradition of the church and scholars and then moving on to my own reason and then moving on to experience. Great. But then so part of the, part of the trouble is that, so part of the problem is that my reaction to many people saying, I don't agree with this is to be like, well, what if I appeal? What if I quote a church father? Like, will that do it for you? Or what if I like, mm-hmm. or what does it matter if it's taught in the, so again, we're classical stuff. So when we talk about the classical church, the historic church, we are essentially talking about Catholicism, like an ancient form of Catholicism. Someone's, anyway, if you want to. There's the, and there's the Eastern Fathers true, too. Totally. Yeah, uh, totally true. Just to say that. So if I were to say. Hands that, off my icons, Thomas. <laughs> more power to you. So if I were to say that it's taught in the catechism of the Catholic Church that God is impassable, does that have any bearing on this conversation? Is that an answer to this conversation? It ought to, it ought to have some bearing. It doesn't and have no bearing. Is then what what mm-hmm. amount of bearing does it have? Is that is that fair? So yeah, it's that it that it didn't the the conclusion did not come willy nilly. Yeah. I think is is um, the answer. Um, I think that it that it's covered in the catechism hints at a long scholastic tradition mm-hmm. that you can go read. Mm-hmm. Like you can go find those things, and there are some things that that change over time. Right, sure. we just had a new council that is still the traditions and the thoughts of that council are still working its way into the lower echelons of the church, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, stuff, you got it sitting on your shelf over there. Yeah, stuff changed Vatican at II. the top. And yeah, the Vatican sure. II council, which yeah. by the way, happened in like within the last century. Mm-hmm. And we're talking a council, like mm-hmm. the Council of Worms. Like, this is a huge deal and we're still seeing the effects ripple out in the church. Yeah. So if I have a question, I can go look at Vatican II and at previous councils and at previous scholars and mm-hmm. sort of dive into this tradition and see if there's a consensus. Protestants, I, instead of having councils, just start new congregations. That. So, <laughs> and, then, and that's, I, I don't know this for sure, but many of the uh, listener responses coming back have been from Protestants. Sure. Right. So then that's just why I wonder, like, do, like to what degree does tradition matter or even what type of tradition matters in that context? So I think, I, I think it's an open question, but I would just say that, that my default in many things is to say, at some level, the reason heresies exist is because of a difference in reason. Like, no, heretics, I, I use that word and I know it has the negative connotation, but people disagree over something because they are reasoning differently. They both believe that they're orthodox, and until a position is determined by the church, like, it's an open disagreement, and then heresy is set. Yeah. Um, Josh Gibbs has, I, I think I'm remembering it clearly, he's someone who we've talked about in the podcast, we reviewed one of his books essentially has a line that he repeats a couple times or this little idea that, re- that he repeats every now and then that he prefers students that are hardline Lutheran or hardline Catholics who are willing to fight about 
the jots and tittles of theology, as opposed to a student that's like, well, I just believe in the things that we can all agree on, and uh, and I try not to get, I try not to let those divisions really, really bother me. There's something sort of, um, you know, milk toast about not caring about these things that's probably belying a deeper um, indifference to God um, and dressing it up as virtue mm -hmm. that, oh, I'm doing this just for unity. Um, whereas somebody that really wants to, uh, re really wants to go back and forth about the, the tenets of Lutheranism and versus the tenets of, of Catholicism, um, there is a, um, there's a difference between owning it and defending it to try to understand it and not owning it, not defending it, and then not understanding it, and then saying that that's probably better because you're keeping the peace. Right. <laughs> I was actually just going to say almost the opposite. <laughs> oh, so I, whenever I come to questions like this one, and this one seems, it seems to be on the the far edges of theology, right? If if it if it leans one way or it leans the other way, what it seems to affect, and this is again, I'm. I'm but a babe as far as okay. these questions go. It what seems a, to affect what a babe. Is a babe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, the quote to take That's how I like yeah. to describe myself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a babe in these things. Yeah. I'm a babe in all things. <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems to me that it affects the way that we view, you know, those words about how he feels about our conditions. It affects, you know, can, I guess, his, his changeableness isn't, doesn't seem to be really at an issue. It's just whether or not he can feel bad. Right. So, the, the, I mean, it's not. Uh, so just to, just to repeat that, because I think that that matters the the specific question that's being asked in the. So if we're only talking about heresy, the question is on the cross, did Christ suffer? Did Christ's divine nature suffer? Right. Right. It's so, a really specific question. Yes. And in these questions that seem. So Graham's mm -hmm. giving me the. No, the no, I'm guy. just. My. Give me a second. So in these in these questions that seem really lofty and complicated and have things like really solid arguments on both sides. There, I think, with a healthy, the spirit of an inquisitor. I mean, that's the wrong word. Someone, someone, <laughs> an inquisitive who, spirit. Yeah, an inquisitive okay. spirit. You, you, want, you have to want to know things, but there has to be a certain point at which you say, "There, I, I am trying to torture a question out of God when He has asked certain things of me, and I can at some point say, like, I am humble enough to not know this, and." But God has asked certain things, and I will do those things. It seems like a cop out, but it, it feels much to me like the situation Job was in. Right? He had a, a legitimate beef. He's like, I have lived righteously, and the principles, so far as I understand them of Scripture, means that these bad things should not happen to me. And then God's response to him was not a defense. It was a, who are you? Yeah, sit down. You don't get to ask me these questions. Yeah. Right. And so I have, I always have that in the back of my mind as I investigate these questions, like at a, at a certain point, if the answer is yet unclear, mm -hmm. I still have some answers from God. And those answers aren't an answer to the question that I want him to answer. The answer is do good to your neighbor and be charitable and help the poor. Like that he has given me things that I am supposed to do. And so I can, I should of course always be questing and questioning, but sometimes like those kids who say, you know, I just don't necessarily want to take a side on this. I, I have a heart for him. It, I may, it makes sense to me in some cases. Mm -hmm. I see it kind of as like a hockey fight what? where you shake hands at the end. Like yes. the, 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 the two sides are going or working through some sort of some kind of uh, uh, process about a question about God's nature. But at the end, 
if there's not a revel, if there's not a realization that you are both still playing the game, um, then that's wrong. So I think so. This is uh, an email that we received, whose conclusion was um, the, the sort of the definition of heretic should be seen as somebody who obstinately then continues to work at dividing the church, whether that's a local congregation or the church writ large. And that can be done with holding a position that is outside the bounds of orthodoxy, or that can be done just by being like a gossipy jerk. Right. And if a gossipy jerk who can like pass the Christian tests on orthodoxy is still being like, did you see what Nancy did? Right. And then really harps on poor Nancy to the point where Nancy and her husband have to leave the church... And that person is also dividing. That that person is the heretic. They are using their obstinacy and what and they're fast holding to whatever that particular sin is. In this case, gossip and slander, or calumny or whatever. And um, um, and that person is is like wounding the church by driving somebody out of it. Then that's that's a that's heresy. That's a that is a, a division of the church. I, I was. So it's, it's weird to use the word heresy because we that. think about it in a, in a completely different way. But right. that's the uh, we that's say, the sort of way to think about it. Yeah. Because, and I, I read the quote last time that we would typically look at that as a as a schismatic, especially historically. But I, I hear the point, and the problem in heresy is not believing something different. That is, uh, Paul commends a congregation for holding many opinions so that they can figure out the right one. But yet, I forget the exact quote, but I believe it's that. The schismatic is in opposition to love, while the person who eventually will be called a heretic, at the point we're talking about it, it's two people who hold different views. They're a heretic if they hold to that view, even after being told that argument has been settled. Yeah. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. But again, I thought that was a very thoughtful email, so I appreciated that. Okay. So the point I'm driving at with bringing in the quadrilateral, and I hope someone is thinking to themselves, why are we using a modern tool to address something that came more than a thousand years before it, which I think is a helpful question, is that I think I think it matters where theopascatism as a new orthodoxy comes from. It matters that it its re-emergence, re resurgence is coming mm-hmm. from trying to address the experience that people have of significant suffering in the 20th century. That in looking at World War II, seeing, that, seeing the, the human suffering that's occurring, they then someone would look and then say, therefore God must also share in that suffering. So while each of us at this table disagreed at what was second and third, we all put experience last of our mm-hmm. four. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Yeah. So if something is coming into new light because of experience, I think that is, that is cause for question. Is there some logical fallacy I'm making right now? No, I, I, I don't think so. Um, no, I don't think so. Okay, that's what that, that's all I wanted to make sure. So I think that is one thing to think about that there has been an established if if tradition is above experience, it matters that the church, Big C Church, has held a certain position for a long time, and we would call that tradition. Whether we agree with it or not, then falls into reason. Is that mm-hmm. fair? I mean, this is the same. You can see the same kind of argument that comes up in questions of sexual ethics mm-hmm. um, um, when we were kids. So we didn't even realize it was happening. The church was going through the big questions, maybe from the 60s and 70s, of how do we now exist in a world where divorce is becoming more uh, socially acceptable? And, um, you know, the church has a pretty – scripture, when it comes on – when it comes to divorce, has pretty um, – not as ambiguous claims about what, what makes divorce acceptable than maybe – 
we are now led to believe that it does. Uh, I don't want to get into the to the nuances of it, but I'm just but I just want to say that like um, every age it has experiences that the church needs to react to, and the church has a decision of whether or not they're going to let the experiences um, interpret the text, yes, or whether they're going to let the text. Um, have authority over the experiences. That that's the. This point. is kind of like the Christ in culture, Christ yes. above culture. The the, the what's his, that guy's name? I have no idea. Um, the the American theologian. Um, I can't remember his uh, name. Him and his brother, Richard Niebuhr. Yeah, Niebuhr. Yeah. I was gonna say like um, Newhouse, but that's a that's a designer. Yeah, Niebuhr, Richard Niebuhr. So the Christ in culture, Christ from culture, um, kind of argument um, of are you gonna let the culture drive the interpretation of the story um or are you going to let the tradition um give boundaries to the experience right um and that's that's a and i think tradition giving boundaries to experience is something that we have no taste for in the modern world um and uh and that comes up in yeah uh the modern questions of sexual ethics that the church is going through in regards to gender and and um Sexual, homosexuality uh, question, and then a generation before questions of the divorce, generations before um, um, questions of, you know, um, yeah. Anyway, it's just. Uh, Can you let an atheist serve as a priest? Yes. Yeah. All those sorts of. There's there's all one these kinds of things. in Canada that's recently happened yeah. where a woman declared she didn't believe in God and wanted to mm-hmm. remain a minister. Yeah. And so she's in the United Methodist Church. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hey, I, of, I've been, yeah, been to those churches where they change. Well, it's United Methodist. Yeah. Um, they uh, they have altered the hymn books to take out any references to Jesus and um, and God and replace them with sort of milk toast, uh, um, sort of happy feelings. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of one on the top of my head, but I can't. But you're getting to the larger point. So, AJ, I think. You know, the first time any of us heard of theopascatism was like last episode or like the book I read about it. Like this isn't a thing we're talking about all the time, but the or, broad point. you know, I seminary 12 years ago or whatever it was right. for me. Right. And then right, I haven't sure, thought about sure. it since. I don't think my theology degree ever delved that far. Yeah. Which is not me saying it's not an important issue because I think some of you might hear me saying that. I don't think that. But it's kind of like uh, uh, Aquinas had these like funny thoughts where he's like in the Summa. It's like. I'm writing this book and it's going to have all these like theological points in it, but not everyone needs to read this book. Mm-hmm. Like uh, knowledge of salvation is uh, you don't need to read this book to be saved. Is this an, is like an Aquinas thing. And so in the same way with theopascatism, like getting people to agree 100% on that is kind of not the point, mm-hmm. but how you think about what you think about that issue has broader implications, not just for one theological point, but even cultural points, even for how we approach literature, like why it matters. I think that's the bigger, more important question. Yeah, like the difference between a medieval understanding of community and a modern understanding of, of community. So, for example, I think as modern people, if someone says, the Summa is really good, mm-hmm. we, and it, has, and it contains a lot of truth about Christian life, we would say, oh my goodness, I as an individual person need to know it and read it and understand it. Whereas in the Middle Ages, I think it's, I, I think I would be right in this saying if someone said, oh, the Summa is really good and it contains a lot of truth about, uh, well, let me characterize it. Someone said in modern world, so the modern person, the Summa is really good. It contains a lot of Christian truth, um, uh, but you don't need to read it because, you know, it's, it's really long. You don't need to read it. I think a lot of people say, well, I'm, I, I, if it's good, I should know it. Right. And in the Middle Ages, if someone said the Summa is really good, it contains a lot of Christian truth, and you don't need to read it, the Middle Ages person would say, well, 
aren't I glad that somebody's thinking about this that's going to influence the community or influence you know everybody like we have this idea that if if something is good we as an individual person should also have internalized it into ourselves well and evaluated and evaluated only the pieces that we that's right and maybe not trust that it's goodness it's going to work itself out in the community that we can benefit from no 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 my brother's not going to be able to to do this i should read it and analyze it for myself out of my own rights and i mean i think we have a lot of sympathy for that argument as modern people and we can flesh out a lot of error but it also does mean that there's a lot of community fracturing because Um, AJ reads it and I read it and we read the same thing. We come to different conclusions and we're head pig headed and obstinate. And then, um, this, no, this is great. Cause then, speak for yourself. But I if, am not <laughs> headed. But if AJ is, you know, if Prove AJ it. is, oh, is, uh, is, you know, the abbot and I'm the monk, right. then I just sort of say, well, he's the abbot and I'm right. the monk. Right. Um, but AJ and I are, you know, and then the commoner equals. says they're the monks. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I say, no, we're, we, we're, you know, we're equals and, um, equals the wrong word but we are we are on the same you know no one can tell me what to do no one can tell me what to think did you just say we're not equals <laughs> um no no no, no. i was that, saying that but that, that the abbot and the monk saying the, they weren't yeah, equals okay. was the wrong thing to, uh, they are in fact they are equal as in they are both made in god's we're image gonna get, we're gonna get the angry email about this one <laughs> but um i think um, you're right i c.s lewis authority talks about, it's just we have problems with authority yes yeah c.s lewis talks about the medievals as being credulous they are they believe their authors. Yes, and, yes. And There's part, charity for those they read. Yeah, charity for those they read. And part of that is that it's, I, I think there's there's several things that play into it. I think one, lack of printing press, right? The books were not as available and so not everyone could read them. You didn't have access to all the information. And so you had to believe the people that did yeah. or the people that had had access. And you couldn't travel everywhere. You might spend your entire life in a hundred mile square Mm-hmm. area right. and so if someone came back and they're like i saw a dragon over there and it had crazy horns and barked like a dog you'd be like that is bananas and i have to believe you because mm-hmm. there's that's the only way we can do it right now if if you and i both wanted to dedicate our lives to it we could read the works of every major theologian you could it would take mm-hmm. a long time but you could do it and then become yourself an expert that and was we could not- afford to do it. we could find the books on amazon and for a couple thousand dollars, we could get enough books to read to take up our whole lives. Right. If you wanted to read the Summa, there might be a copy, and it might be at a seminary. Yeah, yeah. And it might be within a thousand miles. Right. There just it just wasn't possible. And so you, it's not that everyone just was more humble. I think it's that you had to be. You had to take authority. If you wanted this thing to work, there had to be a higher degree and level of trust than we have now. So. It, are you making a positive or a negative comment? Because I see both I'm, sides. Yeah, I'm just saying that that's, that's the situation they found themselves in. And, yeah. it, and it meant that they had to believe and they had to trust. And, and I think, yeah, I think part of it is humility, right? They knew that they're not Plato. Mm-hmm. Right. I think there, there might be a lot of us today that, yeah. that we are. The downside is, is that you, you need to trust authority. And then there's a fragility to that because the authority can be tyrannical. And then you're, there's nothing you can do. Or if you've set up that trusting authority is what we need to do, and then you have someone who's a bad authority, and everyone's like, well, we still got to trust them. This sucks. Right. Um, now, we st- let's not kid ourselves. There is a social cost to having a wide amount of easily accessible information and easily and making information easy to create. Mm-hmm. And we are now in a wash of... Of, of trust issues. We have yes. no idea what we can trust online well, we or just, written. We just... And we've... People use... They, they hack into people's phone records. We just saw that thing with Jeff Bezos came out where yeah. he was being blackmailed mm-hmm. and brought out the blackmail. And yeah. 
I don't think like you know even in the even in the seventies during uh, you know the height of Vietnam the the, uh, the idea that the editorial board of the Washington Post were heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and now I feel like uh, no, I don't think that people trust editorial boards of newspapers or at least see them in the same kind of light as 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 maybe they did back in the back in the day watergate right like journal journalism as as holding the public trust in the public good i think there's a huge crisis of confidence in you know journalism um, but is the is the problem the confidence or is it the people who are in those positions so when aj talks about cicero and that it's good men who are put into those positions of authority you trust a system where that's the social pressure, but I don't know. My the the question I'm driving at with this one is so both so we all put tradition below scripture. Like I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Why is that? We're like, are, 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 are we just overly critical of tradition, or is there something fundamentally that we should be nervous about in tradition? Um. I, 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 yeah, I think we have a we have a nervousness about tradition. And um, I think there, there's an important distinction, right? Bible is inspired. Mm-hmm. Yes, but let me phrase it this way. The, we read English translations of the Bible. English translations are done by humans who translate those Bibles <coughs> and pick words to go there. And if you've ever said, this translation is better than this other translation, you've said, you've said tradition. this tradition yeah. is better than this tradition, or this authority is better than this authority. We don't mm-hmm. think of it that way, but I think that matters. Like, there's still... And even if we read uh, original language um, collections of them, anyway, there are still choices that have to be made there. There are so. easier claims to, ob- to not perfect objectivity, but it is easier to have more objective claims about it when AJ and I can sit and open the Bible yeah. and both turn to Matthew 14 yep. and say this, no this, no this, no this. When you're talking about tradition and you're talking about history, you have a bigger, you have one more layer of abstraction in that you have the person who wrote the history or the tradition in the way that it came down and then the actual facts that happened on the ground. So yes, there is an interpretation layer in scripture from the facts that happened on the ground, but at least if we say that the words themselves are inspired and come to us now, they come to us through the tradition, right? And they come yeah, to us right. through the church, the church councils that said, which books go in there that said, you know, Jude made it. That. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Third Corinthians, you know, there's no third Corinthians. You know what I mean? Like, doesn't make it. Um, and then Protestants say, eh, the Apocrypha, Maccabees, you're gone. Right. Um, so, which in that sense, tradition. which is also tradition. So, it's, um, um, but there is something a little bit more accessible to scripture than tradition. Sure. And that's in the, that we can sit down and hash it out. Yeah. That, yeah, that there's a difference between revelation and reason is, I think, a, a totally fine place to mm-hmm. land on that one. Um, and putting revelation above reason makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I'm on board for all that stuff. So again, the the only the point I'm driving at just with this whole conversation is it matters how you're thinking about these issues. Probably more. Well, this might I don't know. It matters what conclusions you come to, but. I think it's really easy to talk past people in having these conversations mm-hmm. and even in reading the emails. It's just been so funny of like people focus on different of those four elements and so mm-hmm. then they can't really talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So I think there's open disagreement of like what a plain text reading of scripture is. So the scripture reading, there's kind of like, there's a way to, I'm not saying they're inconsistent. I'm just saying that like read on its face to say that God is both unchanging and also pleased and unpleased that can be seen as, like that needs to be reconciled. Mm-hmm. So then we have to go to the other tools to understand 
how to reconcile those things. Yeah. So, okay. Bear with me on this. I yeah. think motivation is a big part of this. So imagine you have a, a four quadrants. You have a graph. Mm-hmm. And on the y-axis, that's the up and down one, right? That's x. And then the oh, other, the x is... Right, you know, left. Y is up and down, X is side to side. Yes. So on the Y axis, going up, so at the top you have honest, pure motivations. Okay. You, you have like, you know, you're doing this for the right reasons. You want, you're seeking after truth. Mm-hmm. And so the further down, you have bad motivations. You don't care about truth. Mm-hmm. All right. And then on the X axis, going to the right, you have a belief in a particular, you have belief in a particular view and on the left you have disbelief in a particular view so if we're talking about god's divine nature or whatever um so in the top right quadrant you have right reasons and belief in the view so you can call that sort of the true believer Mm -hmm. um below that one on the right you have right belief but with the wrong motivations. So you could probably call that like rent seeking Mm -hmm. or um, virtue signaling or just trying to put on, you know, trying to appear right, but you don't really care about it. You don't really care about the truth of it. You're just, you're just saying you believe in it so that you can be in the group or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think we would say that that is a suspect way of operating with, with things. You, you don't Mm -hmm. teach scripture. You hit people with it. Yeah. On the down and to the left, you have bad motivations and disbelief in something. You are just, you know, we, 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 cynic, cynic, a cad. You are uh, um, just a real bummer to or, hang around, or somebody who is uh, completely outside of of any. He doesn't care about you know, doesn't care about truth, and he doesn't care about believing. He doesn't even want to engage with it with the thing. So you, they can either be like um, he's they have, apathetic, yeah, or they are the frothing heretics who want to burn everything down. But then that top left quadrant is a really interesting one: is that they care about truth, but they don't believe the thing, but they have the right motivations for it. Um, they want to know, and they want to. So they're more like first principles thinkers, or they are contrarian by nature. Um, uh, or they haven't been convinced. And I feel like those people still are needed in the church. Is that so? But we often see those people as the bottom left quadrant, yes. that they are, they are, you know, the bad. Right. Uh, and then just let me, let me finish on this. And then, so, and then the bottom, the bottom right quadrant, we c- have a hard time distinguishing them from the top right quadrant. Um, so the bottom right quadrant, you may want to draw this if you're listening to this, is, is the people who are doing it. They don't really care whether it's true or not. They just want to, you know. They believe they, the true thing, but they do it for the wrong motive. Or they don't even believe in the true thing. They just sort of see that the group thinks that believing in the true thing is important. So they get social currency by signaling that they also believe it, even though they don't really care about it. Uh, and then there's the true believers. I mean, that's a little helpful metric. Uh, that I've seen expressed towards just any sort of social issue. Um, the top left, uh, a good example would be Henry Fairley. Have you guys ever read him? Mm-mm. He wrote a book called The Seven Deadly Sins Today. And he, it was all about the seven deadly sins and it's an excellent book. But at, in the preface, he says, I'm, I'm not a believer. I'm like a fanboy. Mm-hmm. I want to believe. And I, I think that all the thoughts are good. I'm just not there yet. Like I haven't I don't have true faith. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the kind of person you're talking about in the top left, someone who really cares about the truth and really wants to go there, but just doesn't doesn't quite mm-hmm. believe yet. So then someone like Rob Bell, who comes out and writes a book saying that hell no longer exists, you then have a big decision to make is, is he, is he top left or is he bottom left, right? Um, 
Like, is he is he wanting to maybe? If he's not believing in the doctrine of hell, is he doing it with, and his motivation is seeking after truth or has he actually stopped believing in this and he's trying and he's throwing a bomb in there um, and there's other motivations going on for writing this book? You know, so it's it's yeah. it's a yeah, motivate. So I say this to mean that Motivation's I think motivation is a really important aspect to this. And I think that's what you're getting at yeah. with talking about what are the modern reasons why we would want to have impassibility or not impassibility. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Does this, so we've referenced before, Graham gave, gave a talk at the school not too long ago. One of your categories were rebels. One of the four, would mm-hmm. that, would that fall in that category? They have good motivations, but not. I, uh, what I was getting at with that is, is I think like a different, okay. a different, different, um, a different heuristic altogether. Yeah. But I think it's a helpful way of dividing that up. So I, I guess where we land this then is to say that there are different ways of approaching Yes, a theological, but also like a cultural, like pick, pick your topic. There are different ways of approaching it. But I think what we would say on, because this is classical stuff, is that there are better and worse ways to rank your sources of information. There are mm-hmm. better and worse ways to say. So, yeah, seeing um, divine revelation as being something that is more important than reason, um, we would say is a better way of thinking about it than putting reason over revelation. Mm-hmm. So, My dad, whenever we would have theological discussions, and I think this kind of crystallizes my thoughts on it. Um, he would always sort of jokingly say if somebody was in opposition to it, well, you know, he'll come around eventually. <laughs> but the but when you sort of really think about that, I don't think he was being sort of being a toot about it. He was basically meaning if the person honestly cares about truth and is hungry and thirsting after God and will honestly follow God, God will bring that kind of soul into right understanding so if you stay above the x-axis right like if you keep the honesty in in wanting to seek after truth i think that that is obviously a better position to be than if you're below the x-axis where you fall on that y-axis is then i think aj what you're getting at kind of less important not that these things aren't important but that the honest soul seeking after understanding is a much more important than the dishonest soul who sort of figures out the right things to say and can sort of go along to get along yeah i think your your point is that the people in the top left top left quadrant Mm -hmm. non-believing seekers will eventually find themselves in the top right yes yeah um whatever that top right is Believing people who seek after Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But also hold orthodox positions. They will eventually if they... If the orthodox positions are in fact... What's the... What um, God needs them to believe in order to work in the church. Yeah, it's the... Um, I think it's Aquinas that truth is the conformity of reality, uh, of the mind with reality. And yeah, yeah, exactly. So to say mm-hmm. that if you are genuinely seeking after reality of what is actually true, you'll eventually find you'll eventually it. come to that point where you got to conform to it or make the obvious. No, I'm going to stay in my uncon- disbelief. my disbelief because it's comfortable, easy. The opposite is too hard, which will so, probably move you below the x-axis. Yeah. Maybe. Mm-hmm. So let's find examples of these. So the top right axis would be Superman. Okay. A why? top left. Why Superman? Uh, he's he believes in right things and okay. he, like Captain America. Yeah, Captain okay. America. Right. He's he's your quality good guy. Mm-hmm. Bottom left would probably be Joker. Mm-hmm. Right. He just wants to see the world burn. He's got horrible motives. He doesn't believe in anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, top left, Catwoman. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. She's not doing the right thing, but she 
she there's a code there and she will eventually hopefully be in the right place who's bottom right they know the right things but they don't do it like uh some sort of yes man politician Hmm. knows the right things but doesn't do them um or just goes along to get along but doesn't really care about it michelangelo the ninja turtle (laughs) does he just go along with things it's like robin he does it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I want to be. I want to be a superhero. Right. Right. I don't really, you know, just want to follow. I just want cool stuff. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. He, I don't know he doesn't have his, his inner core values. Yeah, yeah. If you're a Robin fan, please. I'm so sorry. In this case, don't email us. That's fine. <laughs> I'm not sure it's important enough <laughs> to, to worry yeah. about. Or if you have a better pop culture icon that can stick in the I know right. someone's going to email us with, what the heuristic you should use is chaotic neutral and, yeah, and oh, lawful the good and lawful oh, neutral. Oh, man, oh, man, no. This is great. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Man, awesome. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a like a pop figure who changes their look just to stick with the times like yep. that kind of thing bad yep. motivations are not seeking truth yeah like madonna like, like just a, sort of reinventing themselves to, to yeah, stay like a band current. that yeah. that sells out their their roots for something else yeah they used to play metal but now they play bubblegum pop oh the best are you like, thinking of someone like green day oh actually green day never played anything good <laughs> wow. what okay they, they had a couple of good albums fight me bro <laughs> all right so I, I love that song what's fight me bro <laughs> no, that is song? Oh, yeah it's not all right that's all i got cool well um this has been classical stuff you should know i think you're not sure um uh, i don't know what to think anymore no um we thank you for listening this has been uh, uh, a conversation that i found personally enriching and just interesting so thank you thomas for that if you have questions or comments i can't think of any reason why you would after an episode like this <laughs> right. you can email us at classical stuff at veritasacademy.net you can go to classical stuff.net and see what picture aj chose for this episode you can download not us you can download our episode at any podcast disseminator on the interwebs um and except for spotify except for spotify gotta figure out the spotify and you can tweet at us at classical stuff. If you are the owner of at classical stuff, hey man, we want your handle. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, bruh. Bruh. And you have not tweeted since 2011. So what What? What the junk? Um, anyway, uh, you can tweet at us and well, I will- it's classical. It's literally yeah. <laughs> classical stuff. Yeah. It's been around for a long time. I will like and retweet uh, things um, and I will try to do a better job of retweeting pertinent things to our discussion, like how I recently retweeted- um, the song um, Lip Gloss by Little Mama oh, because that you. came up in an episode a little while ago. Thank you for the So in, if in case anybody didn't know Lip Gloss by Little Mama, what you know about me, I put it on the uh, on the tweets. It's a so, great song. And I have personally made a remix of it's that. It's a middle school jam. I mean, that's a good... Over a Todd Terge song, if you guys no want to. That can, is. You, can you share that? Where is it? Uh, I, I think it would be illegal for me to share. Never mind. Sorry. Okay. All right. So this is the three AJ, Thomas, and Graham signing off from Classical Stuff, and we'll catch you next time. Next Bye. time. Bye. Bye.